0: Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. There is an epidemic of exhaustion and burnout in not only Hollywood, but globally across countless industries. The culture of overwork and exploitation, specifically in the entertainment industry, is beyond toxic at this point, and something needs to change. My theory is that many of the people that have gotten to the top in Hollywood, they didn't get there because they're always the best at what they do or because they are great leaders. I believe that a lot of those who dictate how the industry works today simply got there because they have been willing to endure the most abuse and they are the ones willing to maintain the status quo, meaning they are here to save money at the expense of saving lives. The great resignation is evidence that people are fed up with the status quo. The old model of work longer and harder, it's just not tenable anymore. There are no more hours left in the day to work harder. Therefore, finding a way to work smarter is the only solution that we have left. Luckily, there is a new model that is already out there, and my guest today, bestselling author Greg McEwen, is here to tell us all about how to live not only an essential, but also an effortless life. Greg is a returning guest who made his first appearance on the show to talk about his book, Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less, which I think so highly of that I have included it as core curriculum in my Focus Yourself program. His latest book, Effortless, Make It Easier to Do What Matters Most, picks up where essentialism left off. After making his own life essential and achieving great success from his first book, Greg found that, ironically, he could no longer even fit just the essential things in his life anymore. He was doing all the right things, but he was doing them the wrong way. And in today's conversation, Greg and I discuss how we can all apply his effortless model to both make our lives easier while also having a positive effect on our work culture as a whole. All right, without further ado, my conversation with New York Times best-selling author Greg McKeown. <laughs> I'm here today with Greg McKeown, who's the author of both of the New York Times bestsellers, Effortless and Essentialism, and you are the host of the What's Essential podcast. You've been covered by the New York Times, Fast Company, Fortune, Politico, Inc., I mean, Frankly, if I read all of the accolades, I'm probably gonna waste half the amount of time that I have with you today. So I'm just gonna stop now.
1: Not essential. None of that's it's, essential. None of
0: it is, I love that. None of it is essential. But here's something that is essential that I have to put on the record and make very clear to my audience. In addition to all those accolades, I know it's not the New York Times or Fast Company or anything else, but you have become one of the five most essential voices that I have in my ear that has guided me towards the life transformation that I've made over the last several years. Reading your book, Essentialism, was a game Changer just an absolute game changer and you and I talked about it extensively. I don't want to rehash that entire conversation because it's available already. I'll put a link in the show notes. One of the reasons that I gravitated to you into that book, and we're going to talk a little bit about this, is how you explain the process of essentialism like a Hollywood film editor. And I said, oh, this guy's for me because I understand that process. So we talked all about how uh, we we can become the editors of our, uh, our entire lives. And that actually spurred me to make a major Career transition and build the business that I have, which is now helping other creative professionals rewrite their own stories and find what's essential.
1: Well, I'm I'm, I'm delighted to delighted to be a part of it, and thank you for thinking of me. And I'm, I'm very much looking forward to this conversation.
0: So I want to thank you for that personally. You're now a core foundation of the programs that I teach, and I mean, I've, hundreds of my students have uh, have listened to your podcast over and over and over ad nauseum. Um, so I thank you for all of that. Thank you. That's very kind of you, and I, I, I'm
1: sure there's there's a lot to the story that you just described. I can I can, you know, it's not you're not giving lip service to something. I can tell that that, uh, that there's significance, and um, I'm I'm interested to hear about it. Just for
0: anybody that's coming to this completely cold that isn't aware of you, that isn't aware of essentialism, let's talk for just two minutes. Let's give them like the, the trailer version in Hollywood speak. Give us the trailer for essentialism so we have that as a backdrop to then make the transition to what you're doing now.
1: Yeah, I mean there's there's a contrasting way to look at life. One is as a non-essentialist. Non-essentialist thinks they have to do everything because it's all important. And as a consequence of that, they fall into the undisciplined pursuit of more. That's what they do. And the, the consequences of that is not that they get it all as they imagine they will, but that they end up stretched too thin at work or at home, both. They feel busy, but not necessarily productive. Uh, they're, they're saying yes just to please, just to avoid trouble. Uh, and their day is constantly hijacked by other people's agenda for them. So uh, it's an unsatisfying way to live, and it doesn't fulfil what's on the packaging. It does not give what it promises, and the reason it doesn't is because non-essentialism is based on a lie. Essentialists, on the other hand, they they, they it's we could start with that point on the lie. It's like the first rule of being an essentialist is it's a blunt way to say it, but. To stop lying about being able to do it all, Uh, to stop lying that if you can do it all, you'll have it all. None of that's true. Uh, And so that's the inconvenient reality of the whole approach of the non-essentialist. It doesn't matter what the motives are. uh, it It will lead to an unintended set of consequences. The essentialist sees, does, and gets different things. An essentialist sees a world where only a few things are essential most stuff is non-essential and so they're trying to create space therefore to figure out what's essential to explore what matters to eliminate the non-essentials to get rid of as much of that uh, the trivial many as possible and then to make it as effortless as possible to do what matters most and if you do those things you get something different you get the right results and without burning out. Uh, You uh, have joy in the journey because you're not trying to live by everybody else's sense of of, of prioritization. You're not just trying to keep up with the crowd or, or live by FOMO or live out of your inbox or live a Zoom, eat, sleep, repeat life. So there's this sense of improved quality of life and also improved quality of results. Those are the contrasts between being an essentialist on the one and a non-essentialist on the other. That's kind of the framework uh, behind essentialism,
0: you sound like you've summarized your book once or twice in the past. That was uh, that was very essential and concise. <laughs> um, I must say, um, the the best way that I could summarize it very very quickly, and it's uh, probably the the s- keynote slide gets the the most jokes. Basically, stealing your joke. Picture of a st- a tombstone, and on the tombstone it says, "He checked email." I'm like, is this what it's all about? And people just instantly get it. They're like, oh my god. I totally get it, right? And and that was me as well. Maybe not the email so much, um, but I was so wrapped up in what I thought the definition of success was supposed to be in Hollywood as a professional. And everybody defines it the same way. You get on the stage at the theater and you're holding up the Oscar and you've made it. And other than that, it's always working towards something. And I realized that there was such a tremendous cost at pursuing that, that I had to strip out so many things in my life and decide what is indeed essential instead. And uh, I want you to talk a little bit More about this process and this analogy of the big rocks. This is something that uh, Stephen Covey had popularized in the 90s. That you've also talked about extensively, and I want people to understand that first. So then we can make the transition to talking about how to make things even more effortless.
1: Yes, I mean it's it's a it's a valid and powerful metaphor. It's uh, it's it's, was popularized by Stephen uh, Stephen Covey, but uh, but of course it predates him. It's uh, you know. uh, it around it's, it's hundreds of years, I suppose, and the story is of a mentor that comes along and says, "Okay, here's the container. Your job is to put those that sand, those small rocks, that those big rocks in the container. And if you put the sand in first, then the small rocks, then the big rocks, uh, then it doesn't fit. Just geometrically, it doesn't. And and the idea and Stephen would do this on stage and you'd say, okay, well, let's put the big rocks in first. Let's work out of a different paradigm. And you put the big rocks in first, then the small rocks, then the sand, and it fits. And and most people have heard of the big rocks theory. And and I would say that that essentialism is somewhat analogous to that, that you're saying, look, get the essential things clear, put them first. Um, I mean, maybe you don't even put the small rocks in, or even the sand, you don't even have to bother with it. You just get the most essential things, and that's the way you focus. And and so I believe in that. I still believe in that. Uh, but I also found myself partially because, and ironically, because essentialism uh, did well and, uh, and, and, and opened up so many opportunities for me, uh, that even with being more selective than I'd ever been, uh, I still found myself going, this is, uh, this, I'm not quite sure how you put this in. And, and it begged a question for me, which was, what do you do if you just have too many big rocks? Uh, you know, that's not the same. Now, you can't just say, well, put them in first. It's like, yeah, but they might just not fit. And and then in the midst of that already experience, uh, then one of my children became very, very sick and very inexplicably sick. So neurologists were being involved and she was taking on symptoms like would be similar to Parkinson's disease uh, and this tremendous freefall and capability and that was in addition to what was going on. And so, so you know, that's the, that's sort of the premise for why uh, I realized, well, we've got to go beyond essentialism and go deeper into some of the things that are within these ideas. Uh, and, and that was sort of the birth of the effortless. And I should say, because otherwise I'll maybe forget to say that, that two years after all these problems starting with my daughter, uh, everything, she is well, she is doing very well now, but the experience taught me things. Perhaps I couldn't have learned in any other way. And one of them was this idea that there are two ways to execute. Even after you've identified, okay, well, here are the rocks. Here's the essential stuff. If you, you know, an overachiever might still take, take a rock and, and, and overcomplicate it. Add layers onto that rock. Like it's essential. The thing is important, but you might over overcomplicate it. Add lots of I don't know, just bells and whistles that make it harder to fit in your life. And so, if you can start to strip away not just the non-essential stuff, but the overcomplications that that, that make it harder than necessary to get the right things done. It can make a huge difference, and it did to us.
0: Well, if you're looking uh, in the dictionary for the word overcomplicated, you're going to see my picture. I am the king (laughs) of overcomplicating everything. Talk to my team. They'll (laughs) say— We love him to death, but oh my God, why does everything have to be so hard, right? I'm always, it's all like diving into analysis, paralysis and all these different details. And that's that's really one of my biggest struggles. And for me, it was, I first had that struggle with all the big rocks. And I think that our journeys are so similar, whereas I might be a, a few a few years be behind, but on a very similar path. Where when I found you, it was all about, well, how do I get the gravel out of the way and then sand out of the way? And in my mind, it was, if I just get all this little stuff done then I'll have space to focus and that would happen 9 or 10 p.m. every day well I have the time to focus but I don't have the energy so you taught me how do I find what are the biggest rocks what are the most essential things and I've completely transformed my mindset so now I focus on only the essential things but then I realized I'm going to need a bigger jar like there's nothing that i want to cut out of my life i mean i'm i love the job that i have and i've been, you know been promoted to the, to the point where they uh, they treat me with tremendous amount of respect and i love every bit of it And I'm also building uh, building this online business. I've also been training for American Ninja Warrior for almost four years now. And I prioritize my family. I have four huge rocks and they they take up all the space. And I actually wrote a piece just recently for my audience where I talked about um, exhaustion versus burnout. And a burnout is going to be a big topic that you and I are going to talk about. And I asked them, what's the difference between exhaustion and burnout? And a lot of people didn't really understand it. And I love your take on it. But I said that for me, with all the big rocks that I have in my life, I don't have all this boundless energy. People say, oh, my God, you must have all this energy and you get all these things done. I'm like, are you kidding? I'm exhausted every single day. But I'm so fulfilled because everything that I'm working on is essential Then when I wake up the next morning, I'm ready to do it all over again. But it's still, I would assume that you don't just walk around and write these books and teach and travel and have family. Like, I always feel amazing, right? Like, it's exhausting, but I don't experience burnout anymore because it's only the essential things. And, you know, I collapse in the bed at 10 o'clock at night, but I wake up at 630. All right, bring it. Let's do it again right? And burnout, I feel, and this is something I want you to go a a lot more into, but burnout is more about just not being able to recover, not having the passion, not having the interest. Um, And I feel that you basically encapsulate the entire problem with the entertainment industry, and frankly, a lot of our culture at large in one quote. And that quote is one of my favorites of all time that I share absolutely shamelessly. Burnout is not a badge of honor, and what I love about this quote is that you made it so large on your page that it made it more effortless to hit your page count because you're like, well, if I'm going to hit a page count, what if I just make all my words way bigger and then I need less words on the page. That's an example of being effortless.
1: Yeah, well, listen, you've set up as well because because you you're acknowledging both sides of a problem. Uh, you know, if somebody is doing non-essential stuff, okay, they can cut that out become an essentialist, but it's necessary but insufficient, or at least um, I'll say it this way, that, that the way people read the book essentialism is necessary but insufficient. Because actually I do cover the idea of effortless execution in the book, but it was a theme that somehow in all the work when I was teaching it and when people would feedback what they'd heard, it was just like they, they didn't absorb that second element of the message. So, but but it's it's not to me it's not just a nice add-on like oh by the way when you get to execution make it effortless it's like hugely hugely important, uh, as important as figuring out what the right things are uh, the right way of doing it and the reason that's so important is because if you do it the wrong way you'll burn out and won't have achieved the results you want to achieve you so so it doesn't matter how important it is or how motivated you are if you don't have the resources the energy. Uh, the system in place to get you over the finish line, then, then what else it doesn't matter. You've got to be at it endure to the end. You've got to find out a way of doing that. and And I just think about the people watching this, listening to this. like all of them want better results. All of them want, let's I could call it like a ten x dilemma. All of them want ten x results. Well, however they define that, right, in, in, in business, uh, in their family, in their relationships, in their health. So they all want 10x results, but no one can work 10 times harder. And in that problem, in that dilemma, is the justification for effortless thinking and effortless strategies. Because if you say, well, I want these 10x results, I guess I just have to work 10 times harder, and you try that, then, then, you know, that's the predictable pattern for the, for the burnout that we're talking about. Alternatively, what people do is they say, okay, well, I have to work 10 times higher, I can't, I'll try. And then they give up very early on in the process. It's like a boom and bust execution. Like they try hard for a second and they just, I just can't do this. It's not sustainable. And so then they give up before they're there. So, so. Whether you give up or you just get burned out before you get there, it's still all like leads to this, you know, but, but do you just give up to throw away the big rocks? Just give up? Oh, a lot of people do. They give up on their families. They give up on their health. They give up on something that, um, that, that, uh, you know, is, is so, so what do you do about it? You, you, d- you invert the mindset that most insecure overachievers have this idea that you can, Instead of saying, How can I work harder to get better results? You say, How can I make it effortless, much easier to get the results I want? And in most instances, in my experience, that leaders in general, and by in general, I mean a, a ratio of like at least 90 to 10, when they want better results, will say, and, and often it's higher than 99 to 1, will say, We've got to really get better results. You've got to really go harder. Well, that's the old way of thinking. The old way was, work even harder to get better results. The the new way of thinking says, how do we get better results? By making it easier. Let's look for that. Instead of the Puritan idea that says, distrust the easy, that says something like easy equals lazy. The new, and the data supports this really solidly, uh, is that you say, well, no, of course lazy, easy does not equal lazy. Of course, that's not true. I mean, it's definitionally not true. You look up in a dictionary. Easy is something does not require effort. Lazy is you're not willing to put in effort. But everyone listening to this is already willing to put in effort. So that's not really the issue. Now it's about, you know, how can you get a higher, you know, we know return on investment, but higher return on effort, a higher ROE. And that's really necessary for all of that essential work. That will that will help you you know make a higher contribution What i think the basic position is on effortless is that what got you here won't get you there and so you have to have a second mindset shift and it's it's really powerful what can happen as soon as somebody uh, embraces that 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 inverted view so here's so something people can ask right now they can say of the, something that's important to them, some project that really matters, a goal that they, they would love to achieve but are overwhelmed by, just ask yourself, how am I making this harder than I need to? That's it. That's a coaching question you can ask right away, and it will reveal some brilliant strategies along the way.
0: Well, this concept of doing things the new way where it's effortless and easy doesn't equal lazy, I'm pretty sure this memo has not gotten to any of the decision makers in the entertainment industry. So if you could just clear your calendar and you could talk to all of those that make the schedules and the budgets and manage the sets and manage the productions, that would be terrific because right now the prevailing notion amongst all organized labor even beyond enter- the entertainment industry is in order to meet these demands we just have to work longer and harder uh, listen listen here hollywood's messed up here uh, really <laughs> here
1: in a serious way and, and i I've, I've sort of lived you know close now to the industry for the last few years and i've worked in industries all over the world and 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 i don't really think there's any major industry i haven't worked in Hollywood is different than all of them, and and there's a few things, you know, I, I haven't quite got wrestled it down to like why I think it is so, yeah, so toxic.
0: Yeah, I, I, oh, toxic is, is is saying it lightly, but yes, that's a good place to start.
1: Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, I mean, like among among things I have observed, as a rule, people do not read. It's not totally true, but it's pretty close to being true. So you have people who are creating content, but they aren't necessarily, you know, agents who aren't reading any content. You've got you've got producers who didn't read the original books that the ideas were based on. It's like there's that if you remove reading out of a, of an industry, then then you're going to make them especially dependent on FOMO because you just start looking at what everyone else is doing. And okay, well, I guess you have to do it their way. You know, there's no foundational understanding you can go read and understand what how to be successful based on the best thinking in western literature let's say or 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 just even just best practices or let's take management leadership there's no people aren't reading leadership books they're not going to training most of the 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 hollywood companies that i'm i've worked with uh, don't even do outside, tr- tr- you know, bringing in people from the outside, training and developing culture and so on. So it's this, it's a very strange craft where you have this masses of people. Uh, there's a supply of of people who want to be in the entertainment industry. And it's so vast, the supply compared to the, the actual space for them, that people are willing to do anything to get in. They're willing to put up with any sorts of, uh, practices within the industry. And, and and you know, anyway, we could go on what makes this perfect storm exist. Uh, but I also, I think, adds to this sense of like, well, if, if I've got a 1,000 people down the road who are willing to do this job under any circumstances, all night long, not being paid, hardly being paid, then you complain fine. Off you go. You know, you can leave. You can leave LA. You can leave this this monster of an industry. I'll just get the next person, and so there are these dynamics underneath it. We have a massive turnover, right? The turnover of talent, not just of of actors and, and so on, but also of professionals within the industry that just can't can't make it. Uh, now that I'm still riffing here, I mean, one more thing that I think is 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 strange, but doesn't explain it all, but doesn't help, is the idea that no one gets paid until anyone, everyone gets paid. Means that people don't feel they have You know, they don't have the stability financially to be able to say, hey, listen, sure, I'll come and I'll work on this project and I'll take my time to make sure that I'm doing it well. It's all just like, you know, just I'm only going to do anything that I think will actually get the deal done. And so that's not the healthiest view. Uh, anyway, there you go. I mean, there's a, I'm riffing on this. I'm not sure I'm being very helpful. But, you
0: are being but the- immensely helpful in really bringing some clarity to everything that is wrong because you are on the outside. The vast majority of people that I talk to about our industry issues are on the inside, and sometimes you can't th- see the forest through the trees. And you're coming with a tremendous amount of, of perspective, understanding cultures in other industries, and the problem is the culture it 's this it 's basically this this toxic culture of exploitation, and if you were to ask just about anybody now i 've spoken to hundreds of people about this, but if you ask any crafts person at any level, they all say the same thing, I put up with it because I know that if i don 't, I will be replaced tomorrow. Every single person is replaceable from the PA to the director to the producer to the studio executives. Even they go through a constant revolving door. And I think that one of the biggest issues that I've seen that you just hit on perfectly that I've been screaming from the rooftops for years is there is no such thing as leadership training. Basically, you fail your way upwards. And as long as you survive more than everybody else, you get to the top. If you're willing to put up with more shit, then you get promoted because the other people aren't willing to put up with it. And you think this is the way that it works and that's how the new people are going to come up. So it's created this entire generation of thinking, if you don't pay your dues and you don't give me 90 hours a week and you're not willing to work for exposure bucks, well, too bad because that's how it was for me and that's how it needs to be for you. And I think one of the biggest issues is all summarized in one quote, this is just the way that it is. to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's how bad culture gets moved on. And it's true, it, it, you know, it's like, it's like the equivalent of bloodletting in the medical industry, that you have a, a paradigm well, this is how we've always done it. This is the way we think about it. And you, you know, we are literally for the longest time, uh, you, you know, the the paradigm is you've got to. The blood is the problem, and you need to remove the blood because the disease is in the blood. And so, by you know, we'll put leeches on you and we'll suck out the blood. I mean, this is, you know, other than being medieval, uh, is also you know is really clearly damaging. Uh, patients, the mad, vast majority of patients that experienced bloodletting were being damaged by it, but it still went on, and and it took a, a a whole increase of knowledge, but a sustained increase of knowledge over a period of time to tip the scales that reach the tipping point, and then you said, okay, well, actually, there's germ theory; there's a different way of doing this, and and so I see myself somehow in that role. Of of trying to be an amplifier for for the data that supports a a that, that suggests a completely different paradigm is what actually works. Uh, so it, just because it's the norm, just because fifty million people could 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 believe a thing and it would still be wrong, you can have fifty million people believing in bloodletting. It doesn't make it so. And same for this kind of um, this kind of exploitation, this kind of burnout norm that you just you just have to. That's the only way to make a movie, you know, if you watch the, the movies that made us, right? But they're very entertaining watching some of these. I haven't watched all of them, but I've watched a few of them. And, and it does give you another insight into how utterly chaotic even the most successful movies seem to be. But is it true that it has to be? And, and why? I don't have anyone just explaining that well. Why? Just because that's the way you've done it before. Oh, it's complex. Well, lots of things are complex. You know, I know someone, a a colleague, a friend, uh, whose job it was to build a city. King Abdullahs economic city and his job is to build a city well that's pretty complex too does it necess- necessitate the complexity means you have to be chaotic constantly uh, that you have to treat people as if they are not people i mean this, this is this is a i mean it, it, the 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 thing is it isn't sustainable so eventually it will give way and i i wonder whether the new streaming services might not have a positive effect over time. We'll see, but the, Hollywood's not had a competitor in the U.S., a serious competitor ever. Uh, but the streaming service is suddenly having Netflix, which, of course, I know is has strong presence physically in Hollywood, but but also uh, you know isn't headquartered in Hollywood. It, like that is, you know, they're, they're just swallowing up Hollywood now, and and they're generally speaking have given a lot of freedom. To how creators can go about their work. Now, I'm not. I don't know all the ins and outs. Maybe people could point point to exceptions with this, but but my story for it is that is that this could be quite quite a healthy thing, uh, because uh, because well, I mean now, and, and it's, I can tell you the problems with Silicon Valley too. I've worked in Silicon Valley for 15 years. I mean, I can say the problems there too, but they're not the same as Hollywood's. They're, they're much more. A uh, very fast-moving, very intense, but that they recognise, among other things, the incredible value of the war for talent. So they aren't in this same idea of like, ah, just throw them away. We'll get another incredible engineer, no, no problem. It isn't like that in general. You recognise, you're like, listen, if we don't look after our, uh, you know, our, you know, talent, then they'll go somewhere else. And so they bring those assumptions into the way they create organizations. So, you know, when I see Netflix coming along and I I think it's positive potentially for the the industry to have these various streaming services so that you don't just have a single location where all of the talent feels they have to be and put up with it. And in fact, I think you are seeing this various hubs all over the the US, right, In, in, in Atlanta and in uh, in Texas and, and uh, there's a sort of, you know, Silicon Valley slopes uh, in Utah, but there's also a, a growing films you know, scene there. And I think you are seeing more of this. And I think that could be good for the industry as a whole. So anyway, again, I'm, I'm extrapolating here, but you can tell me where I'm wrong.
0: No, I, I don't think you're wrong in any of those places. And I think that uh, w- one of the things that, that is happening are these huge growing pains as we change the paradigm of how entertainment is created, where it's created and who's consuming it. Um, and that has created a huge demand for needing more talent. And I say talent, quote unquote, because I think this is one of the biggest issues. Where in Hollywood, I do think they recognize certain talent as not being replaceable and they make sure that they get paid well. Those are the showrunners. Those are the writers. Those are the actors. But then there are the people that are, quote-unquote, below the line. Those are the expendables. Those are the widgets that we can find 100 of those that can do the job tomorrow, which is one of the reasons, uh, asking the question, you do Why? Why are things this way? Because at least below the line in their eye, in their view, the talent is limitless, which is why burnout is an absolute epidemic right now. And I love the way that you put this because this was so concise and I think I'm probably going to steal this. I'm going to modify it. But uh, you said, I believe that I'm here to amplify the data to share this idea of the new way to do things, right? And what I do is I amplify the experiences. I like to give voice and amplify people that are going through what they're going through, be honest, be on the record and say, here's what I've been dealing with. Something needs to change and that potentially I can provide solutions for the individual. And I believe that we have reached a huge tipping point. And I know that you've talked about this as well. And I think what's changed, not just in Hollywood, but in culture in general and why we're facing the great resignation and everything else is the pandemic. Because all of a sudden, all these people that were running 170 miles an hour had to hit the brakes and say, wait, what? these are all the things that I've been missing my whole life. Like I get to see my kids and put them to bed at night, like, and I'm willing to, to give all that away again for the paycheck that I was getting and the crappy pension and the, the exploitation. Um, so talk to me about what you've learned through your research and your experiences with what's happened with the pandemic and how that relates to there being more burnout than there's ever been.
1: Well, I think that right now, and, and you could say it for Hollywood, but also everywhere else, I think there's sort of two kinds of people in the world right now. There are people who are burned out and then there are people who know they are burned out, right? Like that's like that's it. That's the group. Better to be in the second group because at least then you start to want to do something about it. And and that, you know, it, it's it's represented in a variety of ways, right? There's, there's the the zoom eat sleep repeat lifestyle. I mean, that's part of what it is. It's a sense of no boundaries. The or the experience of looking at your Fitbit at the end of the day and it says three hundred steps. You know, and that's not even an exaggeration. There's this sense that days running into each other. And, And then you've got to add to that the experience where people keep thinking the end is, we're going to get to the end of this. And then as we proceed down the path, there's this growing sense of fatigue, pandemic fatigue for sure, but also like, oh, actually... There isn't really an end. Now, it's different in different places, different places in the world and certainly different states within the U.S. Uh, in California, um, it, it's, the sense is it's very much with us. I mean, on the coasts, you have that sense, partially because of the density of the population. So there is that change partially, I think, because of the politics to some extent about this, about how these issues have been framed. and But the, nevertheless, it's with people. It is present with them, and it, it, say, the, the England is the same. I can I cannot really have a conversation with people in those locations where it won't be in the conversation. You just can't have the conversation with that, like a conversation on any subject without it being part of the framing. Whereas there are some of the locations, I'm um, I mean, in mean, uh, Arizona today, in fact, and, and here it's not in the conversation. I'm not making a political point other than to say it seems there seems to be political reasons for these things being emphasized or not. I'm not I'm not trying to uh you know to, to weigh in and say, oh, well, this this isn't really a substantive concern. I'm just saying the psychology of it is wearing on certain groups and certain places more than in other places. And and so that's all causing you know mental fatigue and, and emotional fatigue the isolation is enormous is really real and then so these people waking up oh hybrid's not going away and, and and that's partially because people don't really want it to they like some of the advantages but it also means that we're not you know the isolation isn't going to go away it's not like everybody there wasn't like a moment like the end of the war and these painted pictures we see of the end of the war, and everyone's just triumphant. Finally, the Second World War is over, and it's done, and get back to our lives. It's it's like okay, it's kind of over. It's kind of with us. It's kind of over. It's kind of with us. And and, and so, and so it's not like the, there's the big moment of let's come back together. And so that isolation, I think, has a cost. Well, listen, I'm describing all the problems. I should describe solutions to these things.
0: But we, we will get there. Don't worry. I haven't lost track of the fact that we're going to talk about solutions. I didn't forget why we're here. Um, but I definitely agree that uh, one of the things that's just weighing on people is we've never experienced this feeling of catharsis, right? Like, oh, man, well, the last year and a half was tough, but man, it's Thing. we can now. go back. You know, we can't do that anymore. And what I found is that the sooner you just embrace, here's our new reality. And rather than trying to avoid the obstacle, how do I just get through the obstacle or embrace the obstacle as part of my life, and it'll help me learn and grow? That's going to take a lot of the the edge off. But if it's still trying to figure out how do we get back to quote unquote normal, like you're you're there. We're we're this yeah. is normal. We're, this, it's not going stuff. away anytime soon. Okay. Um, and I think that just the that. That inability to release that expectation is one of the things that weighs on us and causes the burnout as opposed to, you know, this feels fulfilling and I'm enjoying it. And yeah, it's exhausting, but I get to wake up and do it again. It's like, is this ever going to be over? It's not. It's not about waiting for it to be over. It's about finding a different way to manage it.
1: Yes, I think think that's right. I mean, I think it's to do with the cost of being in a semi-denial, you know, a kind of a wait, well, we'll wait and then... When we get when these things improved, then we'll take take action. Then we'll move on with our lives. Then we'll, and it's like no, this is this is it. You, you're in it. So so I I I, I do agree with that. I, I remember when I was very first uh, when this all first hit. Right. I mean, I I had friends. It didn't happen to me, but I had friends and even a family member who were they're in the plane going to events that they're going to be speaking at, and the events like two or three events in a row. And in the air, everything's cancelled. By the time they land, the whole thing is just all over. And so, you know, there's various industries that were disproportionately impacted by this, most industries impacted, um, but some really significantly. And uh and I remember the decision I made, I said, okay, well, just pretend or just accept that the entire industry you're in, right? Like, you know, I speak at conferences and I teach workshops and I'm, you know, an educator. And let's just assume that that's gone forever. Like you will never do an in-person event again in your life. And that seemed to me to be a better, faster way to, to adjust to the reality then I mean I, I know some people okay well this is going to be two you know a few weeks oh no this will be a few months and and then they're holding on and holding on to something instead of using all that time to adapt and to learn and to figure out what you're going to do instead and, um, and, and, and so I think that sort of that embracing of reality instead of the construction of a denial story is 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 optimal uh, in life. Uh, and optimal in, in in this pandemic to to embrace what is, because then you can innovate from that place rather than always being out of step. Because you don't want to face you know you don't want to face reality. You don't want to deal with it. Uh, and and of course, if you don't deal with reality, you make a problem part of your future. As soon as you accept the reality, you make that problem a part of your past. And, and I do think that that is a, a better way to exert your, your, you, you know, a, a, a limited energies uh, so, so that we can get traction in today's reality. Uh, I mean, I think the only other thing I'll maybe riff on here for a second is just that it is what I have actually found happened. I mean, the things I, the things I did instead, said, I said, okay, well, I have time to write the next book. Uh, you know, that's something I could do under these circumstances. and And I was already under contract to do it, but, this gave me the, the the window and time to really get to it with effortless, and uh, and then created the, the the podcast, the What's Essential podcast, you know, which which uh, you know started in the midst of the pandemic and now is like top, maybe like top five in the self improvement category in, in in Apple iTunes, and, and we're just trying to slowly improve it over time. Um, so, so we get, I think it gets it gets incrementally better uh, constantly. And then One Minute Wednesday. And I'm listing all of these. The One Minute Wednesday is a newsletter that people can get that's for free. We did an online academy at essentialism.com. I'm not listing these things. I suppose it will sound like I am to say, oh, hey, go check these out. I'm listing them because, well, because I probably wouldn't have done those things. I don't know if I'd have done any of those things if I'd had this sort of, well, just let's hold it out, let's wait, we'll get through this. But because of that adaptation, what has happened. Uh, and I, it's just my story for what's happened. I could be wrong, but it, it now the demand for the kind of work I do is easily twice what it was before the pandemic. And it might be even more like three times for real what it was before. Uh, you know, we'll get maybe more leads. We'll get more leads in a week than we used to in a month. And, and I don't fully know because there were so many changes made. I can't, I can't accurately extrapolate exactly why. You know, is it one thing or another or is it independent of those things? Is it just because the need is massive and so, you know, for the wellness, well-being scores are so low right now, which they are. I don't know what all the factors are, but what I do know is that, is that uh, embracing reality uh in yourself and in other people seems to be an absolute key to innovation and breakthrough Uh, and and so that means getting honest with yourself facing reality but it also means facing reality within other people by listening to them and really understanding where they're coming from uh, so that we don't have false and fake stories about them running in our own heads
0: Right. My, my suspicion would be, and I know nothing about your business model. I don't know your stats. I don't know your leads, your web traffic. I know none of that. I have a suspicion about why exactly I think you've seen the growth that you have. And it comes from the previous conversation that we had, where I believe that when the pandemic hit, that's when people were forced to ask the question, what is essential? The timing is perfect because nobody even thought about what's essential. Cause I don't have enough time to think about that. Cause I'm too yeah. busy. And yeah. all of a sudden they hit the stop button. They're like, holy crap, I need to start focusing on what's essential. And I think the people naturally gravitated towards the work that you're doing, the work that others are doing in this space, because before, and I don't know, you ex- experienced this, but I felt like for years, I was shouting from the rooftops and looking down and there was just nobody there and nobody was listening. It's like, guys, this is so important. And then all of a sudden, a year ago, people are like, okay, I'm ready to listen. I'm ready to listen. And I have a feeling you're probably experiencing something very similar.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, you're not wrong about that. The, I mean, the word essential might have been the sort of global word uh, of the moment because everyone's talking, and this is not how I would always think about this word, but everyone was talking about essential workers and non-essential workers, right? Like what? So that word was being used constantly. But I guess more, more emotionally people were experiencing um, like involuntary essentialism. Uh, You know, where they, they, it was like we were all sent to, you know, like a teenager, right? You just go to your room and you have a good think about it. Come out when you're ready. And so people did have to face, sort of face some of the realities of their life. You know, like I've said before that it's, generally speaking, people find it easier to face their phones than face their life right? It's easier to be distracted by whatever app or whatever news or whatever does, email or input than to really look and say, okay, how is, how is my health and how is my family and how is, you know, and suddenly you, whatever your home was, it was like that idea of like, you've made your bed. Now you have to lie on it. It's like whatever home you had built, you had to be in it physically, literally. If you chose to be in a, in a small apartment in the middle of LA and that's what you chose. Well, that's where you are now, every minute of every day. And so that's one of the reasons lots of people, people I know in, in the industry who, who were like, uh, "I'm out, man. I'm, I'll stay in the industry, fine, but I am going to live somewhere else. this is just crazy. I'm trapped in here with my two kids and my wife and uh, it, it, you know, but you people also had to face, it wasn't just your physical environment, right? It's like whatever your relationship is with your family, whatever your family dynamic is. You're with them all the time. And, of course, that caused some problems because people weren't used to being in those situations and often were avoiding conflict, as we tend to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so suddenly it was like, well, there's no avoiding it. You, This is it. You're together all the time. Your children, whatever their behavior, you have to deal with it all the time. And, of course, that came at a, a great cost. And I wouldn't really wish any of that on anyone to to just have to confront that much reality that fast, it can be discombobulating and disorienting. But it also, I think, provided this opportunity of like, you know, a collective pause, a collective moment. And hopefully we won't have another like it in our lifetimes, but it was certainly the most significant one like it I've ever seen. Uh, and, And out of it, you know, you could, you can, you can hope and maybe that is why we're seeing so much so much interest in these subjects but but there is an awakening there too of like okay what is it all about what do I really want what do I want what kind of lifestyle do I want to create and uh and and as people face that this isn't going away fully I think there will be a sort of okay well fine I'm not I'm not waiting any longer with this I'm I'm ready to go and People seem to think that's gonna be January of next year, seems to be the, the industry assumption, uh, that, that that's when it's all going to really hit. We'll get through Christmas, do deal with the holidays. And then let's move on to the next thing. So,
0: yeah, because the germs are looking at the calendar, right? They, they, they have a timetable. <laughs> yeah, um, right. they, they know when it's all going to be over and we can go back to normal. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> what, what I can say, and this, there's a, you play a big part in this, whether you know it or not. Um, but when the pandemic hit for me personally, like it did for everybody else, it either amplifies what's working or it amplifies what isn't working. And what I found is almost immediately, my family really came together. Our relationships got richer. And I started asking the question, what are all the things things that I would change now that I have to pause. And I'm like, nothing. I mean, there were strategies that I had to change. I had to delete nine months off of my calendar because I couldn't, you know, do the in-person events that I was going to be planning. So as far as business plan, I had to start from scratch. But as far as what would I change and what's essential, I'm like, I've already got all the rocks. I just need to reorganize them a little bit. Um, But what I realized, and this is going to segue to some of the solutions, is I hit the same wall that you did. I don't have the bandwidth to carry or hold all these rocks. And I want a bigger jar. But if the jar is my calendar, there is no more time. I (laughs) only get 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's my jar. And I don't have room for the rocks. So like, like you said, it's not a matter of I have to work even harder. I've got to work smarter. How do I make this more effortless? And one of the things that I want to mention to people that I've said before is that there is no better return on investment on anything on the planet than a book. Because you can get a book for, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 bucks, depending on if you get Kindle or hardcover, whatever it is. And if you read all 200 plus pages and you get nothing out of it but one sentence, it can be worth it. Mm -hmm. And I shared this with you via email, and I want to kind of give the spoiler to everybody that there's a ton of amazing stuff in Effortless, but I boiled it down to one sentence, and it was the one sentence I needed to hear at exactly that moment in my life, and I've made all kinds of sweeping changes in the way I organize my time and my energy because of this one sentence. Do not do more today than you can fully recover from by tomorrow. Yeah. Boom. Boom. Mind blown! I was like, "Oh my God, this is everything I'm doing wrong." Because, like you said, uh, uh, the the word that you used earlier was insecure overachiever. Ooh, right. that one hurt. That was twisting the knife <laughs> deep, my friend. Because that's me, and probably most of the people listening insecure <laughs> yeah. overachiever. Whatever I achieve, well, it's yeah, not enough, too. and I got to do more.
1: Yes. Well, I mean, even your description, which I'm, I'm not, and I'm not knocking at least half of it. You're saying. Well, I'm exhausted every day, but not burned out. And I do agree that with the difference that you're putting on that, if you're motivated in the morning, you're, you know, you do want to be optimally uh, invested. You want to put, you want to have something you want to wake up for and to
0: give yourself to. And
1: I and I really relate to that. But if we are actually
0: exhausted every night, not I knew jealous, this was coming. By the way, I yeah, knew this good. was coming.
1: Well, because because there's something about that that I go, well, is that. Is that optimal? And, and I don't know because there's a lot in the word exhausted, right? There's a range of meaning. But you, you already identified the rule that I would be putting to you. But you've got to try and figure that out. Like, yes, have an exception every so on, often to the rule. Don't do more today than you can fully recover from You know, by tomorrow. All of us will have exceptions. But as soon as the exception becomes the rule, then there are hidden costs you know, then you're going to pay a high price for that, right? Things will burn out. You know, even things like our ability to see things clearly. So our relationships still work and our, and, and our you know, we, our, health may be okay in certain ways, but we are foggier in our perception and our discernment when we're running on the edge of exhaustion all the time, when we're teetering right on the edge of it. And so I think that if we can figure out what that line is for us, and then we have to remove, you know, like we have to go a little away from it so that there's some buffer uh, for unexpected problems that always come up. And, 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 and then that becomes your optimal space. So I'm not saying go to zero. I'm certainly, I'm never advocating for that. That's not a meaningful life. There's no contribution in sitting in a rocking chair for the for 30 years and do nothing. I mean, that offers no no sense of satisfaction but if we get if we push it to the point of diminishing returns then of course we're getting less back for every ounce of effort we put in but we also risk the higher level of exhaustion which is negative returns where every ounce of effort we put in then will make up everything in our lives worse when i'm writing the new book right i'm writing effortless if i work if I work two or three hours of concentrated work, but actually that's about optimal. I can't really do much more than that. Really concentrated work. And I actually don't think anyone can. If you push beyond it, if you say, okay, well, I'll do four or five hours, you're certainly not getting another, you know, an almost doubling of your productivity. No way, you're getting a few extra bits of productivity for all that extra investment. If you go to seven, eight hours, I mean, I'm talking on a consistent basis. You will make the manuscript much worse than if you didn't even work on it today. And, and, you know, that's my one example in my own life that I know of, you know, you know, personal experience, but it's true in other things too. So it, it's it's about saying, how can I contribute in crescendo? Yes, I like the way of thinking about it. Stephen Covey used that language early on. Uh, well, with me twenty years ago, and and he and his daughter were co-authoring a book when he died, and she's just finished it. It hasn't isn't coming out yet, but that idea of living life in crescendo—you y- don't live life in crescendo if you live it on the edge of exhaustion. You will plateau way way before that, you know. You you st- and then and then what I want to do is I want to be able to contribute for the next forty years, always going up. And so I've got to be very careful to make sure that I manage, you know, manage my mental, physical, emotional, spiritual health in such a way that you can contribute over that kind of length of time. So that's a different, that's a different orientation.
0: That's optimizeyourself.me slash Q O R three six zero. Let's talk a little bit more about this idea of how do we find that line? How do we find the upper bound? Because I would say that if if there were if there were one thing that could have the most profound impact on the way that I manage my life with all the different rocks and a lot of the other people that are listening that are also the the insecure overachievers, if I knew what's what's that magic number for my upper bound where I'm doing the maximum amount of effort where I'm actually getting results from it, but I can fully recover by tomorrow, and in the evening, I'm like, you know what? I'm tired out, but I don't feel like a bag of dirty laundry. How do you find that for yourself?
1: I mean, I think it's, I think it's personal to each person, right? Like, I think it takes self-awareness to be aware of that, but it also takes some honesty. Um, I mean, a, a, you know, a metaphor that, that uh, well, it's a, it's a story, it's a case study that's compelling uh, is, is the, the race to the polls. Uh, there's, there's the name of a biography about, about the final two teams that, uh, the last two teams to try to get to the South pole, uh, before someone actually achieved it, right? Like this is right at the edge. No one has ever, ever done it before. Not, 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 not the whole British Navy. all of its prowess not the not all the vikings for a thousand years no one has ever made it there ever and people are really excited about who's going to do it people keep trying they keep failing and the two teams that go at the same time they approach it differently one team is boom and bust Uh, they're they're saying we're going to go to the absolute edge of exhaustion every day that you know that they can and so on the good weather days they're going you know 40 50 miles it was taking everything out of them. But then the, the unintended consequence of that was on the bad weather days, there was hardly anything left in the tank and certainly not sufficient to be able to be consistent on those days. So they ended up just being trapped in their tents. And that exhausted them and demoralized them. And they, they oh, were so unlucky. Uh, you know, you could sense in their journals their emotional state. And it's bemoaning everything that's happening. Uh, no one could make progress in weather like this, they would write. Uh, but one team could, and that was the Norwegian team. And over there, the expedition leader had a different rule. And his rule was 15 miles a day. That was the rule. Good weather, you do 15. That's your upper bound. And bad weather, same thing. But because they didn't push to exhaustion on the good weather days, they had sufficient to be able to be consistent on bad weather days. Well, the plot thickens when they get within like 45 miles of the South Pole. The weather is perfect. The sledding conditions at that point are also perfect and ideal, relatively flat. And they don't even know where the British team, their competitor team is. So for all they know, the British team is ahead of them. They have no idea. And they can push through one day and get there. What would you do? <laughs> you know, what would you do? Seriously, right? Zach, what would you do? What would I do? What would everyone participating in this, listening to this do.
0: Just do it, just power yes, through man, it. make it happen. We're so all close. Of, all of us would do that.
1: And that's, that is the insecure overachiever speaking. That is the no pain, no gain mantra. We, And even though I know the end of the story, if I'm honest, I sort of think, well, yeah, that's probably what I would do or, you know, at least be tempted to do. Well, he doesn't, he says 15 miles a day. He takes three days to do the last 45 miles. He arrives there at the South Pole. He has beaten the British team by thirty plus days, and that should get our attention because because the idea that pushing to exhaustion, it be, like the I, the reason we do that is because we believe that's the fastest way to make progress. That's the way to win, and it isn't. <laughs> and that's the point is that actually, it is much, much slower. And, and this example just captures, it's not the whole data, obviously, it's just one case study. But, but but not only is it not what leads to winning, it's also, in this case, led to tragic ends because the British team, not they, by the time they got to the South Pole, they're burned out, they're exhausted, they're emotionally fatigued. None of them make it out alive, right? They all die on their journey home. The Norwegian team had sufficient resources to make the 16,000 mile trip back to Norway. Well, if you read the biography, right? When I went back and read that that, that brilliantly written biography, I came across a phrase in it that I think should grab our attention, It'd take a breath away, really. Uh, and this is the phrase. He said, the Norwegian team achieved progress and achieved their goal without particular effort. That's the quote. Without particular effort. Um, that's, um, that's an absurd thing to write. You know, it was the most arduous, physical, objective, almost conceivable to humanity at that time. And yet he's saying that they made this progress they without particular effort. That says something about the false way we think about making progress, the bloodletting approach, and how we need to think differently about it and execute differently about it. Uh, And and so, you know, when when I'm talking about upper bounds and lower bounds in the book, it's just whatever task you take on, whatever goal you set that you think is important, make sure it really is essential, but then have a minimum bound so, that you're doing a small amount consistently, but also an upper bound. So, you're not, so you reduce the chances of going big for a day or two, getting exhausted, and then, you know, and, and then stopping for a while. And then you come back and that intermittency that is so, so the human foible uh, that, we, that we're intermittent in our behavior because we don't have an upper bound. We go too big uh, we get sore physically or emotionally and we give up for too long what we want is 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 counterintuitive but we want an upper bound on it and i'll push one further point to you i can't remember the name of it but it's an ultimate fighting for um, ufc trainer uh, who works with the most elite competitors in that sport and his whole premise is that is that no one training should ever be sore i want you just to think about that because you know i have to use the credibility of someone else because i'm not i'm not you know training for uh, remind me of the name of the
0: american movie. ninja warrior i was just yeah, going to bring it that. up anyway the perfect segue continue
1: <laughs> well it's you know it's it's, it's so counter the message messaging that we normally get about training and especially at elite level athletics or, or performance and yet uh, and yet there is uh, there is a the data actually is growing so it's not really it's not really in question but the culture is miles behind so, it, so this is tough, like medicine. What I'm describing. So, some people, to some groups, it's just like, no, we just can't even hear that. Uh, you know, why? Why did I do it? The hard way because that's what they have to accept if they want to accept the new mind. Well, why did we put the leeches on our body? You know, back to bloodletting. Like, you don't want to accept it because the grief. What does that mean? I've done. Uh, but to but to accept that we've been less than wise in the past is just. An evidence of getting wiser, you know, and, and so the faster we can admit these things, I think, I think the better. So anyway, there we go.
0: Well, I'm going to give a a little bit of a microcosmic example to really help people understand how do I apply this theory? Uh, Because specifically what you said about the UFC fighters and not being sore, and that coupled with you have to only do today what you can fully recover from by tomorrow, I was like, this is the exact opposite of my training routine for American Ninja Warrior because I came into it as somebody that had I competed, I would have been winning dad bod competitions, like just flat out. I would have walked in shirt off. Oh. Your their grand prize blue ribbon for that dad bod right there, right? Not an athlete at all. And I said, I, I want to make a significant change. And this show has inspired me for years. What I love about the the sport is that it's something I literally can do. I can't do it now, but I can do it. They have seventy year old people that are running the course. I'm like, I have no excuse, so I'm going to go after it. But I spent the first three years of my training where I was doing two, three, four nights a week, Sundays, like just doing these all out, uh, you know, one and a half hour, two hour, four hour sessions, and. And And I was constantly sore 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it was destroying my sleep and it was destroying my productivity and it was destroying the energy that I needed to have with my family, which was counterproductive to the entire reason that I was training because I wanted to be more energetic and be more present and I wanted to inspire people. So I read your book and I'm like, huh. How can I make this effortless? And one thing that I've been experimenting with for several months now is instead of doing these really intense workouts during the week, I have one intense workout that I do every Sunday. It's like a four-hour ninja workout, swinging, ropes, all kinds of crazy stuff. I'm always sore after that. But the rest of the week, I've eliminated all of the long, intense workouts. And an example, a microcosmic example, is that I'll just do two sets of pull-ups and push-ups. That's it. It takes me like five minutes. I'll do it like after lunch and I'll do it in the evening. Like when my, uh, just focus is getting a little bit lower. And I said, what's the maximum amount of each that I can do? And I'll break that maximum amount in two sets. That's all that I do. Don't even break a sweat, but my performance on those Sunday workouts has skyrocketed. And I'm putting in way less effort during the week and I'm sleeping better and I'm not nearly as sore. And that to me is the perfect example of how I can take something that was essential, but I made it not necessarily effortless, but as effortless as it can be. And I have way more hours on the calendar in the jar, so to speak, where I can start to move things around a little bit more because I'm not spending hours and hours and hours at the gym.
1: Well, that's a great story. I just love that story. And I love the... Uh, Uh, You know, I love that you are able to apply it to, especially to this subject that I think is one of the places that 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 feels a bit too unbelievable to people. Uh, But I I remember talking to one of the elite um, coaches in Canada who works with these Olympic athletes, uh, and he said, "Well, for for the last 20 years, we've we've already been adapting." this mindset because because of the research, you know they're, they're driven by the results, they're not they're not they're not trying to be ideological about it. and and one of the phrases that he brought up which which I, I like is is we we have a big difference between run hard and run fast. And, and I, I like that difference. He said that he said, if you imagine right now like go run hard, what would that look like? What do you imagine that to be? Now imagine running fast. It's like it's a really different orientation, and so and so that's the again another one of these problems where hard is implied always better, and it's like no you want to be able to to run fast you want to be able to be smooth, uh, and uh, and so you yeah, know that's one more one more data point. He's a doctor in the field, and, uh, mm-hmm. and and he absolutely completely rejects the no pain no gain mantra. Just completely thinks that's just wrong it's wrong. And it is, I, I, I maintain this. It's not balanced. And it's not, um, uh, I don't think it's uh, necessary to think like, think in that way. Uh, even though it's posted on all the gyms everywhere, we I mean, can post things that are wrong in, 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 in memes all over the place. It happens all the time. So, so yeah, we're trying to try to get, I love the story. That's my summary.
0: Yeah, and that uh, I have a, a fellow ninja friend of mine that I've met through this entire community, and he said to me, fast is slow and slow is smooth. And I'm like, what the hell does that mean? And as I started to learn what it meant and internalize it, like I was just always like, I'm going to get up this rope and I'm going to get up the pegboard, right? And I expended so much Energy. And as soon as they said, listen, just relax as much as you can without letting go of the rope. Just breathe. Like when you get up there, breathe and relax. And you watch some of these professionals ninja, the ninjas go through these courses and these obstacles. It looks like they're asleep. Like, they're as limp as possible, and they're just grabbing from one thing to the next, and it's effortless. And I said, that's what I want to do. I don't want to be the strongest one. I want to be the smoothest one. So that's really what I focus on more than anything is form. How can I make sure to use the least amount of effort possible to get from this rung to that rung or this rope to that rope? But then I applied it to how do I do that as an editor? How do I do that as a father, right? And now if if I were to show somebody the time blocks on my calendar, there are still a lot of them and I'm working on eliminating some. But if you saw it for working on Cobra Kai, for example, if I were getting paid for the hours that I work, the 20th century industrialized model of clocking in, clocking out, I'd be fired. They'd say, you're not working enough hours during the day. But I always think to myself, and I even have told the people that I work with, I wanna make sure that I have just as much in the tank when we're in the trenches doing the season finale as I do on day one? And why would I burn myself out on week two when I have 24 weeks ahead of me, right? And that's a hard sell in this industry right now.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it it is because because we do want people to, you know, the the other side of the equation is you want people to live, you know, an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. You know, when you're the one paying, you always want that to be, you know, to get. But what you really want isn't even that? That's like a minimum uh, measurement. What you want is high value. You want a higher value than what you're investing. You know, so so you do want to dislocate those two measurements. You want people that that are just that are just creating better and better value for you. Not oh, I worked hundred hours, but I didn't do anything that mattered for you. So it's, it's absolutely right and um and 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 you don't know what's going to happen on week 20 right so you you know the whole thing can get blown up there can be a whole massive you know suddenly change oh we can't use this this actor we can't you know some financial change there could be all sorts of things that will make your life suddenly harder and if you haven't allotted for that in your strategy then you get you know then you have then you Pay a high, the highest possible price for that adaptation. Then, so I, I mean, I love, I love what you're describing, and, uh, and here you are working on a high-profile um, editorial job, and and doing it. You can tell in the way you're saying it, like that it is smooth, uh, relatively smooth, anyway,
0: uh, and that's that's exactly the right way to do it. So I wanna be very respectful of your time, but I have one other quick area that I wanna get into that I think is a really important one for people to understand because they would never in a million years think that this is a quote unquote productivity hack. But I think it's a really important one that I feel like I would have failed if we didn't talk about it, and that's gratitude. And I want you to tell the story about when you realized how important gratitude is, no matter how bad or bleak things might look. Because I know this is a realization that you really had and applied in your own life with the situation that you were going through with your daughter just a few years ago.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I I mentioned it sort of at the beginning as as framing, uh, but we'd moved into a lovely kind of picturesque area and the children were thriving, a little heaven on earth, really, Um, and, uh, and one of my daughters was especially thriving, Eve, and I mentioned, and as that situation unfolded, we had what was at least potentially, uh, not just potentially, I mean, just, you know, one of the most agonizing experiences of of, a li- of our lives and I think of, of any life. I mean, I think it's up there with those, you know, to, to watch a 14-year-old in perfect health suddenly become sicker and sicker uh, on the way to comatose, Falling into a coma and then you know know, dying, uh, and you can't do anything about it. You have no answers, and no neurologist knows a thing. And thirty-five years in the business, I remember one of them so experienced, just shrugging his shoulders. He's like, "Look, you know, it's all coming in the normal range. I just just don't know what to tell you. Uh, Let me think about it. So let me work on this." And and I followed up with them so many times, or we did, and and he never even got back to us. He just never even could figure anything out. So that's the circumstance. And, uh, I mean, we what became clear to us was that there were two ways of dealing with it, right? There's, and I think I mentioned that before, but there's the harder, heavier, more complicated, uh, self-victimized, you know, like the obsessing over the, the way of victims of this situation. And that the problem with that approach, although it... it I mean, of course, that's not optimal to fall into that endless anxiety or depression, victimhood. It's not just about the experience of our life. It's like materially limits your ability to help our daughter get better. You know, because first, it doesn't help. You know, puts you in the wrong state. And then it, it it makes it harder to even discern which things to do. Uh, it it may like everything that's hard is now even harder. You don't know how long it's going to go on for. You don't know if this is months or years or decades. You have no idea. And many people in these kinds of situations, in these medical catastrophes, or these unimaginable scenarios, uh, that, you know, it ruins everything. It, it, It can destroy the rest of their family and the rest of their culture and their marriage and, and, you know, any sense of professional success. I mean, it can really distort and disrupt everything. And so, what we discovered in that extremity was this second path. I mean, this is the why behind effortless. Really, the personal why behind it is, is that we realize there is, and it's more than just gratitude. But but the gratitudes is as, as central as any other response. That if and I'll say it this way, right? If you focus, if you focus on what you have. Then you're going to gain what you lack, but when you focus on what you lack, you lose what you have, and that's sort of the 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 axis point, uh, the central sort of location of the division of these two paths. And that says the paths divide. Um, gratitude doesn't make doesn't exactly make a hard thing easier, but it certainly makes. Well, certainly keeps you from making it harder than it needs to be, but but also maybe it does make it a little easier because, because it has a, a growing catalytic upward, um, naturally upward spiral attached to it, what Barbara uh, Fredrickson called the broaden and build theory. As you are grateful, as you are thankful for what is going right, uh, well, there the, are the, neurologists who will still meet with us. With, with, with us. You know we can be grateful for the family culture we have. We can be grateful that uh, that we're coming together and becoming unified. we can we it seemed to have a uh, this this propelling force about it that helped us to feel more energized, more more able to deal with the day and and so and and then helped us because you're in a better state, you've got better discernment. so we started. Knowing, hey, maybe maybe we shouldn't even bother with these neurologists, but this one seems to be the one we should meet with, and you just sort of sense that and discern it, and and this is what led to her eventual treatment, and um, and she has, uh, you know, she has uh, you know two years on full recovery. I mentioned at the beginning, it's, it's, she is back and she is thriving and she is well, and and I really do not think that that would have been what would have happened if we'd taken the harder, heavier path. And, you know, as a simple rule, one simple rule about this is to simply say, well, after I complain, I will say something I am thankful for. And even if you start there, uh, you, you will notice that it has an immediate positive effect on you, but also immediately on the people around you uh, because, because you, you, you get more of what you focus on. And uh, that's it that's a lesson that sounds uh, I don't know, but does it sound too good to be true or does it sound whatever but but it is I used to think of this as like a soft principle or a yeah, it's a nice to have. I think it's the most rel- powerful uh, r- like a rugged, relentless principle, a person that can do what we're talking about right now. Can turn a negative into a positive, and a person who can do that under all circumstances can never be defeated. So it's uh, it's it's it is made for the for the for the agony and catastrophe of life. This principle is made for that.
0: Yeah, I, I can't emphasize that enough. That the productivity hacks are not the the Trello. Um, power-ups and the the to-do list apps and all these other things, it's all up here. It's all the limiting beliefs and reshaping your mindset and your perspective on the world. And that's where productivity really comes from, really understanding why you're doing it, why you're driven, what's the impact that you can have. Um, and I think that your your work just exemplifies all that and helps to clarify all of it. Um, I know we're running a little bit over, but I do have one final, very quick question for all of those that are out there that are thinking, this is the worst that it's ever been. And, you know, the, the industry is just getting so so much worse, or I'm dealing with depression or burnout, or I'm dealing with an issue with my family, whatever it is, they're in that place where they don't know what's going to be better, right? They, they, they don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. There was a point at which two, three, four years ago, you didn't see a light at the end of the tunnel, and you didn't know that things were going to work out well, and you were going to be in this position today. So if you were to get into a time machine and you were to travel back to what you would consider your darkest moment where you were wondering is my daughter even going to live knowing what you know now what advice would you give yourself
1: well um that's interesting because because the advice i would give is advice that was given to me in in a way uh, the advice the advice is simple and and it's it's things work out and better than you think and that's true with the situation with Eve, but it's also, I was once asked a similar question, what would you tell your 18-year-old self? And that was the same answer that came to me. And it's like, wow, that's thats like, you better start living like that because, because you don't want to live now in a state that doesn't accept that that optimistic reality because then you just waste your life now when you could have 20, 30, 50 years more of, 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 just, of just basically living uh well living in joy living in gratitude living in like it's it's a bit more relaxed about it all like it's all gonna work out uh and and the way that that advice came to me is i'd felt sort of really inspired to read a particular talk it was a it's a chapter of a book by gordon b hinckley who's a church leader um, and and it's um he's the former president of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints and it is incredibly optimistic uh, in his like one of his known qual- qualities that he was on, you know, uh, Larry King and 60 Minutes and all of this, like he's he's a, you know, a, a, dom- a, a sort of indomitable kind of leader. And it, there was this one chapter I'd read years ago by him, and it, and it was about cultivating an attitude of, I think it was cultivating an attitude of uh, of optimism and happiness or something like that. And right as he as my daughter was getting ill. Um, I felt like I should read that every day. And I did for uh, for the next four months when she was going through that first deterioration and had no idea what was going on. And that was really as much as any single thing what opened up this second, the idea of this second path. And so that advice that I now would give back to myself then was being given to me in the form of this repetition. And it's the repetition that is in. It's as important as the message, because if we have a message once compared to the hundreds of times our mind is creating an, uh, this, 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 these false stories, but repeating them so often they start to feel true, you know, that's insufficient. And so I think it's this repetition, uh, you, know, you know, again and again and again until it forms uh, a space in our minds to even believe it's possible that this could be true wait, is it really possible that it all works out? Is it really possible that it works out much, much better than I'm currently thinking? Uh, you know, well, it, they, 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 yes, the answer is yes. Uh, but it takes that repetition. And even now, I'll sometimes go back and listen to it again. And I'm amazed how quickly it just re-orients you know, re, um, my perspective. Uh, so yeah, that's my answer to your question.
0: Well, I would say that that's a pretty amazing way to wrap it up. And uh, I want to be as respectful of your time as I can. What is the simplest, most effortless way that somebody could find you and get started with your work if they're just being introduced to you today?
1: Yeah, I mean, they can just go to um, if they go to Greg dot com uh, and sign up for the weekly newsletter. It's a free resource. Uh, it's a one minute called One Minute Wednesday. It's a one minute that we try to make it the most essential minute you're going to spend online each week. Uh, and it's just a very short, but succinct, um, you know, taste of these subjects. And, and I think it's proved to be very useful for, 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 for all the, uh, the, the, the masses of people that have signed up for it. Uh, just because it keeps us back every moment, just gently coming back to this, to these questions and subjects.
0: I love that idea. So we'll make sure to put a link in the show notes to gregmckeon.com. And I highly recommend everybody read both Essentialism and Effortless. I think that they're absolutely essential books uh, in anybody's uh, repertoire that wants to really improve themselves. And Greg, I cannot thank you enough for considering these last 90 minutes essential in your life and being with us today.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you.